This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rituparna, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Dolly Keekon and Joel Rodriguez. Dolly Keekon is an anthropologist whose work focuses on the political economy of extractive resources, militarization, migration, indigeneity, food cultures, and human rights in India. She is the author of Life and Dignity, Women's Testimonies of Sexual Violence in Dimapur, Nagaland, 2015, Leaving with Oil and Coal, Resource Politics and Militarization in Northeast India, 2019, Leaving the Land, Indigenous Migration and Effective Labor in India, 2019, Ceasefire City, Militarism, Capitalism and Urbanism in Dimapur, 2021, and Seeds and Food Sovereignty, Eastern Himalayan Experiences, 2023. Joel Rodriguez is the author of Seeds and Food Sovereignty, Eastern Himalayan Experiences, 2023. He's a doctoral researcher at the Department of Social Anthropology, Stockholm University. His writings have been featured in Gastronomica, Morang Express, and Riot.in. His piece research work engages with law, violence, memory, food, and media. In today's conversation, we are going to discuss their recently published edited volume, Stories from the Heart, Food Journeys, that has been brought out by Zuban Books in 2023. Dolly and Joel, I welcome you to this conversation with NBN. Thank you so much for giving us the time and opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Rutuparna. Right. So let me actually begin with this question about the context in which this edited volume came together. What was the need? And, you know, could you talk about the context? Yeah. This is a project, I would say, a book project that came out of a very, very long um, conversation about food that Joel and I had been having for many, many years um, and I think the pandemic in 2021, when Australia shut down from the world and I was stuck in Melbourne without seeing my family, my friends and my loved ones for two years, um, really, really triggered my longing for home, my, of course, longing for food and all the connections that was there in the Northeast. And 
I realized that Joel was also in a very similar place. I'll give him the time to talk about his journey, how this came about. But but as somebody who was here in Gohati, uh, you know, connecting with me, I think this conversation then became something concrete. And one day, I think when I was going for a walk in the park, like all projects start, you know, just through conversations, I suggested how about uh, writing all the stories that we are discussing and offering an invitation to different writers how would that be? And I think Joel was very, very generous. And he said, I, I'm on. Let's see how this is going to pan out. So to answer your question about the context, it was definitely the pandemic. It was definitely 2021. And also it was around a time when food became so central in conversation, especially in the context of India. I had families in Nagaland, in Assam, and all across who were even struggling to buy potatoes and rice. There was a shutdown of the market. And, and then we began to see how, especially in the hills, especially places like Nagaland or Arunachal Pradesh and all, um, our friends and our families and relatives were foraging in the you know, in, in the wild and we're we're starting kitchen gardens. So as much as the pandemic shut down the world, it also really opened up a space for us to think about, among many other things, life, loss, also about food and how do we nourish one another. So Joel, I please come in about the context for you. For me, the experience of the pandemic was very central in writing and collating this book because it for someone who is from Bombay from Goa and who was caught up in many ways in Gohati it made me think what is the idea of home where do I feel home where do I feel safe and it is here in the northeast that I would rather be than anywhere else during the pandemic and yet the my home was a place I felt safe as well as I felt very lonely at that time. And uh, it was during many conversations that I was having with Dolly, long conversations over the phone. It just calmed me down several times and made me think that here I am safe and sound and yet struggling in so many ways. So the phone calls... Uh, with Dolly is while we were thinking about what would we what would we do when the pandemic is over or when the pandemic subsides in some way and it it's part of the many dreams that we dreamt together during a time like pandemic that one of them was this book so the journey of the book is through the pandemic and through the longings that I had of of the food that I missed being locked up in a place. Uh, because as it happens in the Northeast, uh, your friends, your extended families are constantly sending you lots of food from all directions, from all the states, uh, from different families, from different communities. And sitting in Guwahati, I have the privilege of tasting them all. And during the pandemic, somehow that channel was cut off and I was there longing for food, for the herbs, uh, for things that are prepared in people's kitchen gardens and their homes uh, in a place of love, in a place of uh, 
solidarity, a, a communion of sorts. I think uh, these were my uh, my initial reflections and the motivation to get this book together. Thank you to both of you for beautifully laying out the context. And my next question is sort of a follow-up because you're talking about food journeys from the Northeast. So is there something called Northeastern food? Um, thank you, Rituparna. This is such an important question for us. I think both as social scientists, as people from the region, as people who study the region, um, I remember as a student, this, this, this question has been there, um, you know, for quite a number of a couple of decades, and it continues to emerge in um, mostly, I would say, academic conversations. And I think I am very uh, aware that I'm underlining academic and intellectual conversations. And it also perhaps holds a mirror to what is it in the world of research that we uh, intellectualize and that we debate about. Because if we take this question, which is a very important one for us as researchers, as thinkers, as writers from the region, if we take this question out of that world, for everyone else, you know, the, the people who work in the Northeast Frontier Railways, the people who work in the Northeast Council, um, of, it's, it's, it's a done thing, right? It is a both a directional and both, both I think, um, a process of understanding governance of a very particular region. Uh, when so when armed forces uh, come to the region, they do say that we are going to the northeast. And many of the people that we meet, and we, when we ask them where it is, then they begin to specify Manipur, Nagaland, or Arunachal. Uh, when we meet government officials from other parts of India who have been posted here in the region, they say, oh, I was in the northeast. Uh, when children from other parts of India uh, grew up here, they seldom mention the name of the state. They often say the opening line is, I grew up in the Northeast myself. So I think in this process of thinking about, is there a region called Northeast? I think for me at this stage, as somebody who's so devoted to the region in terms of fieldwork, in terms of engagement and advocacy, I've come to a point where I would say yes. Right. There is a place called, I think, Northeast India, and it is both an extractive region. It is both a region where there's a lot of out-migration. It is a region where Armed Forces Special Spar Act is still uh, very much present. It is a region where we are still overcoming the trauma of militarization. So I think that's the shared experience that brings a region very visible. The second amazing connection that you think uh, and you link about Northeast food, I think it's really relevant, not only to this conversation, but also why this book exists. Um, I may be um, not quite off the margin if I say that when it comes to a book like this, it's, I think, one of the first efforts. I know Hoi Neuhauser wrote about the Northeast uh, food uh, recipes, bringing it together. I think it was, yeah, it was published by Penguin. And, and then we have an amazing repository of Assamese writings on food, right, uh, in, in Assamese language. Uh, but I, when it comes to the Northeast, when it comes to archiving everyday lives, including food, it's in the Assamese language because the written culture is very, very old in the Brahmaputra Valley. But in terms of the English writing, I think we were very um, 
how can I say, both experimental and courageous to bring out this food so that we have a way to say that, listen, the idea of the Northeast and Northeast food is real. And what makes it real beyond the, beyond the idea of direction and geography is thinking about a place of solidarity, thinking about a place of affection and connection. Right. First, we talk about diversity, but in the diversity, it is amazing how the stories, 23 stories that we brought together are so much about connections as well. The Northeast food, um, I think, experience is real. Secondly, because it also allows us to recognize the international boundaries around this region. So if you look at Akur's piece, who wrote about his journey of eating fish as a Mete, you know, musician, thinker, He's going in search of his people uh, through Assam into Bangladesh. And because he's from the Northeast, that he can connect both with this idea of the uh, Métis diaspora in Bangladesh and also the connection with food. The second beautiful essay in this book that we saw, which actually is Northeast food kind of, you know, conversation that's happening is Anjuman Arabegum's work on Muri in the borderland. And she brings it so powerfully and beautifully about making Muri among uh, the Muslim women community and what does it mean for them. If we don't, I feel as an anthropologist who work on food, if we don't recognize these stories as naughty stories, oh, I think we are also then rejecting the idea of the borderland and this exceptional space that we share, which sometimes we also call it the Eastern Himalayas. Um, so Joel, I'll, I'll ask you if, you want to say anything or if you're okay with that? I'll just summarize what Dolly has already said, that uh, we understand that there is a space as Northeast food because food is so closely li linked with our lived experiences uh, every day. And thereby, food informs our culture and our culture is informed by food. It goes both ways. So you cannot separate this lived experiences uh, which is different from perhaps the rest of the country. And uh, the the communities here are still very closely connected to their land. These connections are reflected on how they treat food, how they are involved in the cultivation practices, how doing the kitchen garden is a collective experience that many people uh, are raised within. Also, how the flavors uh, are, always takes you back to home when you're away. Uh, so these experiences together uh, of uh, the community's connection to land, which continues, uh, and how it is reflected in their everyday, I think that is why there is a significant notion, there's a significant uh, lived philosophy of Northeast food. Right. My next question is kind of related because we're talking about is there a need for a Northeast or a food or is there something called Northeast food? Uh, so what was the need for a book on food from the region and what role did both of your positionalities play in bringing this volume together considering that both of you have different social you know, identities? I didn't think we, uh, as uh, editors, we look from the perspective of the need for a book of uh, of this nature. Instead, during our discussions, uh, it was the 
solidarity that we have uh, we have lived through and the shared experiences uh, these were the things that we were longing to tell through uh, through the stories that are in the book so the idea did not come from a need uh, a need for a book that uh, on northeast india but it came from a place of fellowship and solidarity and uh, that is also very uh, very central to my role in the book as someone who was born and raised in bombay and who came here to the northeast for his uh, to do his masters program and who continued to remain here uh, to live with so much joy and with so much of love i think that is very central to uh, my experience in the book dolly you would like to add um sure disparna this is such a generous question about our our positionalities and you know the the need for a book on food from the northeast um i think for me as as somebody was uh written a lot about militarization about human rights you know with a law background as such um i'm still learning to look around and acknowledge what else is there i like i often shared with you i i i am from nagaland but i feel that i almost know nothing about this region it is so diverse it, it has layers and layers um of of experiences and so when i was thinking about this this book was there a need for it um i think like joel was saying about solidarities and love i came i was approaching this book from a space of acknowledgement and acknowledging not only the people the communities who cook who share food um and who grow food for us but also the plants it is exceptional in terms of the biodiversity of the region in terms of the plants we get and we eat at the fish mint you know pennywort where else do we eat those uh you know and and just the richness of the seasonal food that's there it is amazing that it should i think um help us maybe to think about right here a methodology of humidity and acknowledgement when we work on food on a region like northeast india I remember growing up as a child every season I was on top of a tree either the bogori tree am gas different kinds you know looking at jungle berries eating often not even making it home before sunset in the summers now it's winter here can't eat to wet bogori right and the bogori gas is lined up across Brahmaputra valley with both the paddy fields flanked on the right and the left and the harvest where else do you see a golden field ready to be harvested and we see it we we devour it with our eyes as scholars as as people who work on the region like jewelers adopted the region as as home but i was coming to write this book from a place of acknowledging i think the plants the bogori you know the 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 sawal and you know all the lovely lovely food that we have been eating and how do we then begin to have that space and i think that's where my positionality uh perhaps as somebody from the region as a naga anthropologist uh you know played into it and i think joel also has been very very gracious and generous sometimes 
uh, most of the time I would say to just uh, indulge me in this in the, in this madness of thinking that I have. So thank you, Joel. I just remembered this one story that Facebook threw up on my face a few days back about about me going shopping in a place like Mysore uh, more than a decade ago. So I was with my friend who is from Nagaland and we were going to buy some groceries. And he told me the story. I mean, he told me that if he would go ahead and ask for the prices of the vegetables, he would have to pay extra. He would have to pay more than what I would pay. So he would ask me to go ahead and do the bargaining, ask for the price and buy the vegetables while he he stood behind carrying the bags. And he, I said, why is this so? And I was so ignorant and dumb at that time. And then he said, this is called the skin tax. Or this is what amongst his friends they call the skin tax. Because they are from the Northeast, they paid the skin tax on the prices of everything that they buy. And I had I had forgotten uh, that story until Facebook threw up uh, a few days back. And I think... Uh, Times like those and times like uh, when I've heard these stories is what has informed my positionality over the years. Of course, uh, one of the f uh, first academic readings from the Northeast that I did was all Dolly's writing. I was so, once upon a time, I was so engulfed with everything that she wrote and I wanted to read everything that she has ever written. And I think I did that. I have read everything that Dolly has ever written. And uh, her lived experiences, her uh, human rights experiences, where she's documented uh, so many events, tragedies, violence at the grassroots as part of human rights organizations and how she's brought it together. Uh, and the readings of many more uh, amazing scholars from the region. I think that has informed my positionality constantly uh, telling myself that perhaps I don't know enough. I Perhaps I don't know anything at all. So uh, what I really need to do is sit down and listen with an open mind and acknowledge and cherish and work deeper and deeper in solidarity and fellowship. I think that's very important to listen and because we're talking about collaboration also in a way and we also talked about stories so I would want to know what role storytelling plays in this book. Um, Ritpana you're asking amazing questions so thank you very much I think you'll have to edit a lot of this interview I'm telling you Joel and I are having the time of our life answering your beautiful questions Storytelling is so important and is so integral to the world we come from. And I cannot stress enough as an anthropologist, as an ethnographer, with amazing fellowship that I have with fellow sociologists and other uh, political scientists who do field work. How do we understand what is theory? And I think we have been so far removed and so intimidated with the world of ideas, right? That it is still in a lot of the connections and conversations that I have with students, it is still so abstract that one, students are constantly hiding behind literature reviews, particularly the students from the region who come. Um, and the voices, the, the voices really take time to come out. Storytelling is so integral to everything, including reporting, 
um, including the theories that we make of the world, the ideas as as to the world around us. Uh, recently, I think last year, I wrote this small piece for the seminar called uh, Stories as Theories. And it came from, I think, one of the most scathing, horrible reviews on, of my book, Living with Oil and Coal. Um, and I'm okay with critics, but the fact that, you know, certain readers trash it as just nothing but full of stories really is revealing, is telling. Uh, because I think even even in the world in the world of research, we really don't know the value and the depth of what stories can do, and particularly for indigenous cultures. And we look at writings from Australia, from New Zealand, uh, from First Nations communities in North America, uh, from Latin America, from different parts of Africa. Rituparna stories are so important to show us a world that's out there. Um, Gohati, I'm I'm speaking about this book from Gohati. How did the name come about? It's the it's the place. It's it it, it was the Garden of Bitternuts, Tamul, right? I'm I'm looking at the name Kohima. Where did it come? It was the name of a plant, a flower in the Tenibia language, right? Uh, look at the places we have, right? Humologuri. Um, um, you know, Jalukbari, Guwahati is filled with suburbs named after plants. So today when we have urban studies at, at its height, and we have so many smart students coming to study the city of Guwahati. Uh, what can stories tell us? And I think you so wisely uh, put that word about listening and how do we listen. I think if we have to be sharp scholars and Think about theory. We have to learn to listen. And perhaps we are really uh, at a point in time, especially when we are writing about the Northeast, at a very good point where there's a space of generosity, a space to experiment, a space to allow one another to listen, to share, that we can, I think, really, really um, think about story and storytelling, not as something dumb, right? Because if we say the storytelling is dumb, we are, in fact, erasing our entire history that that, that our ancestors kept it for us to say, you know, does, does it mean that my Naga ancestors were so dumb and stupid that all they had was oral culture and they were not smart? That's not true, right? The Naga Hills, the way they defended the Naga Hills and they fought against the Britishers is recorded. And it says that they, they defended the Naga Hills for almost 47, close to 50 years. They were not dumb people. So I refuse in a say. I think it's also the rejection, right? It's also the rejection of me as a thinker, as a writer, to say that we just put storytelling in a basket, in a dustbin, and then we prioritize Foucault. No offense to Foucault. I'm, I'm very happy students without Foucault and, and, and prioritize Elizabeth Povenelli. And we, we, and we wobble and we ramble in that world of abstraction where many of us, sorry, unlike Walter Benjamin, will not walk down the boulevards of Paris, right? I will walk down the roads of Karguli and I will walk down the roads of Uzanbazar to buy mass in the morning. How do I theorize that? I think we need that kind of courage and honesty as scholars, as thinkers, to respect the people who live here if we have to, I think, continue to, to write about the region. Joe, please come in. <laughs> you have to unmute yourself. Uh, I, I don't think I have anything to I add. 
Dolly has summarized everything so beautifully. So I will just let it be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't want to edit anything. It's been fabulous listening to both of you. And uh, Dolly, it's not an appropriate platform, but Joel has already said, like him, I also read everything you write. And, you know, uh, I'm a huge fan. And yeah, uh, it's also interesting how you talk about storytelling and it being dismissed because primarily as ethnographers, I think that's something we always face in terms of, you know, the... Uh, yeah, the authenticity of our research in that sense. Uh, I have to also ask now uh, some questions about how issues of food are looked at it in the book. And as editors, you'll have a bird's eye view. So, uh, you know, how does food determine domestic relationships and identity? Both questions being very important in the Northeastern region. I think uh, it's a very difficult question. And it can be also a painful question to ask. When we started the journey of the book and when we invited people to write, we did not give them a structure or a framework to work within with. And yet, I think very central to the what people have written and how they have, in a way, told their stories from their heart and from their soul, this domestic relationship and identity is always there and it's quite central to many of the writings. Let me read a, a rather long piece from, long extract from what Chani has written as someone from the younger generation from the region and how she sees her identity intertwined with the dynamics of food in her culture. She writes, my childhood memories are far removed from the land, but not from food. I grew up running around car-ridden streets and manicured parks. The only land I toiled in was the sandpit in the playground. When I joined my mom in her garden, the various creatures that accompanied her attacked me and left me with rashes, as if smelling my inexperience with the soil. But food was everywhere, in the cafes and restaurants. I frequented with friends the snacks I prepared every time I hosted friends at home, at, pot at potlucks where I cooked and ate more than the previous day's meal. Lunchtime at school meant a rush to get in line for a sliver of pizza, a boxed pad thai, or an overpriced sandwich from the restaurants nearby. When my friends and I cooked together, I always wanted to try a new recipe 
how about a lasagna or a burrito bowl? These experiences have shaped my taste today and the food I enjoy is now far removed from our land. Growing up outside Mizoram exposed me to food that I try to find in the state today, in the grocery stores that are attuned to my globalized taste. I think these new experiences like Chinese are also very significant to how we see identity intertwined with food. And all of us are constantly negotiating and renegotiating and discovering and rediscovering our own associations of how we see food in everyday life. Similarly, Sangeeta Tete also writes about how uh, during her childhood, her family mainly ate rice and leafy vegetables. And these leafy vegetables were grown in their kitchen gardens or color collected from the forest. And there was a variety of vegetables in their paddy fields, riversides, and jungles. And with every different season of the year, they had different vegetables to, to forage from, to grow, and to eat. And this is, this is one of her primary memories of how she remembers her mother and her relationship with food. Uh, and without romanticizing it too much, she writes, it did not cost anything. We did not need money to spend. Buying dal would cost a lot. In order to save a bit, we used the leaves mixed with rice starch as staple at home. Uh, and yeah, these are some of the experiences uh, that are in the book which speak of domestic relationships and identity. And for me also, as growing up uh, in a house uh, filled with domestic violence, I was very hesitant to, to cook for myself or anyone else because every time the food was not perfect according to my father's standards, we would have a fight at home. We would have uh, physical violence, we would have sexual violence, and you did not know when this would stop. And when I started living alone by myself, I was so scared to cook. But I realized that as a small boy who was always standing at the door of the kitchen because I was not allowed to enter the kitchen, uh, I would have these mental notes of what my mother would put in the pot and when and how long did every step t uh, take and over the years and years I think they had all collated to the point when I was living alone and it all burst through my hands through my mind through my soul of let's try all of these dishes that my mother prepared and that is how it started from this intense fear of cooking ever in my life uh, not knowing who would bounce on me, who would uh, physically uh, hit me for not being uh, for not being good enough. And there it was the first people that I actually cooked for are for my friends from the Northeast, who no matter what I cooked, were very appreciative, were very loving and very kind. And I think it is from there that I got the confidence to now cook for bigger crowds or bigger communities and for everyone I love and that's the joy that cooking has finally healed a part of me very significantly. I think I've spoken enough. I think Dolly should come in here.
I will only come in here to tell Rituparna and all the listeners that Joel bakes the most amazing sopotel and he comes to the kitchen and all our amazing conversations take place there. Uh, and so he's been very, very generous as a dear, dear friend, as a fellow anthropologist, ethnographer. Um, and and I have nothing more to add. I think this 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 moment that he shared, I think is very poignant and should make us think. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm really sorry that you had to go through something like that in your childhood and adolescence. And uh, it also makes me actually think about uh, the relationship that food has with memories, nostalgia, and sometimes even bad incidents. Uh, and uh, this is where, you know, probably you one can also change how memories are from being bitter to good ones. And this is also through food and the people and the relationships that, you know, you build over time. So, uh, you know, I also want to know this relationship between food and memory because it's very intricate. And how does this come out in the book? That's, I think, you know, that that's such a special question. I'm really looking at the book even as, we are talking in this fabulous podcast. And one person who comes to my mind among all the wonderful contributors in this book that I bowed on to is a Janice Perriot's essay. And I am amazed that she took the time to write this piece for Joel and my book. It's titled Heels, Plains, and the World, A Life in Meals and Morsels. And it's about her journey, her memory of growing up in the tea plantations of Assam. Her father worked in tea and she recollects her childhood eating continental food like many of the plantation families in Assam and the world that she was opened up to through her grandmother and her taste of porridge, something as simple as that. And for Jenny's period, her comfort food is porridge. And I think the memory that we have with food is not only food, it's like a doorway that opens up our present to a past of relationship, to a past sometimes, which is very painful and violent, like Joel was sharing with us. But it's only by going to those moments can we find the courage to heal and come back to the present and find a generous space to write about it and then move forward. Because in writing about that, we also are forging a community. So Rituparna, during the, I think, beginning of this podcast, you were talking about your journey as a sociologist who works exceptional pieces on food and, and I think things about food as well. And I think that moment, I felt that we were all part of a community. Um, and so in terms of food and memory, Janice Perriot's piece really spoke about the connection. The other piece that came to my mind is Nivi Kotso's uh, piece. And I'm thrilled that we have a Naga male writer and a scientist who's, who writes prose. I think very, very few people in the world of science can bridge into the world of prose and write. And he's somebody that we should look out for as a writer, as a thinker from the region. And he writes about his journey with rice beer. And as a Naga feminist, it is an astounding piece that is going to stay with us for many, many decades to come. Because I feel that for the first time, we have a Naga male writer and a thinker 
who is calling out hypocrisy in Naga society, who is calling out the idea of violence that families go through. And his piece is about his mother who, 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 who brewed rice beer uh, in Kohima for the family so that he could study, he could go to school. And that's a journey both of memory, but also a journey of politics and a journey of calling for justice and a journey of holding a mirror um, to our face about what it means uh, uh, what it means to talk about inequality among indigenous communities. Because I think we're in a danger in terms of food and memory where we are obliterating a, a, a very complex uh, conversation about inequality and you know about, about land as well. Um, I think that's really important. The, the third part that I wanted to bring in was this piece that I also wrote in the introduction. And I, I call it Auntie Senti's uh, Alu Chutney Recipe. And I think this is an ode to my mom as well. Um, you know, one of the connections that Joel and I have uh, is a hard connection. And it's also because of the childhood experiences that we have had. As a feminist, I've always talked about family violence. I advocate very strongly for the elimination of gender violence in all societies because I grew up in one of them. And so I grew up about, I grew up at, with a single mother and it was very difficult for my mom to cook because she she had to bring home the money. And so I was often, I think, eating in a neighbor's house, you know, growing up somewhere else, waiting for my mom at the gate so that she would come at sunset. So I think food was really important for me to think about it. And so when I got the chance to write, among all the things I wanted to write, I wanted to go back to my memory and present this uh, Auntie Sinti's alu chutney as homage to single women, to migrants from rural areas who come to urban places like Dimapur, Guwahati, and how much they take up in terms of the space to care for us, to care for others, but are often, often eliminated and erased in this world of high theory when we have to theorize, you know, when we have to really talk about how smart that we should sound in the world of research. So I think the connection between food and memory in short, uh, is in some of the reflections, you know, that, that I've just said. Joel, please come in and say something. <laughs> no, I, I don't think I have anything more to say. Yeah, uh, that's completely okay. I know that this conversation can go on for hours. And uh, my last question, because this is an edited book, uh, how do you look at the structure of the book? what thought process went behind, you know, the present structure as it emerged. As we, we, we mentioned before that perhaps there was no structure. We, we wanted the book uh, to have, to, to showcase the solidarity and the shared experiences that we were longing to tell. And uh, so the book, is a book of fellowship that we are offering, a book of solidarity. And uh, though when everyone wrote it and when we put the book together, yeah, there were certain strands, many of them really overlap. Um, but if I am forced to, uh, uh, to answer to that and give a possible structure, there are, there are few essays that at their core, they engage with the idea of Northeast food or the the idea of what is a food that is ethnically authentic to their own communities and how uh, the association with food 
is very uh, closely linked to identity, to everyday lived experiences. And the moment of resurgence, the moment of uh, revival in, in, of, in sorts. So there is a group of essays that would possibly come there. Uh, there are a group of essays where people are on this journey of life and uh, through the violence that they have faced, to the insults that they have faced, to the uh, happy times that they have, they have shared together, it has taken them on a journey of courage, of love and fellowship. Uh, there are a group of essays that look as food and the taboos that are associated impo uh, restrictions that are imposed on uh, on people subtly and sometimes too explicitly, and how that uh, different a different relationship with food. Uh, and while we are on these journeys, uh, there are certain essays that are clearly telling us hold on, don't have a romanticized version of food from the Northeast because the moment you have uh, recipes that are that are divorced from everyday lived realities, uh, then you have something very incomplete. Uh, so whether it be in the tea gardens, whether it be during famine, whether it be during war, these are very important lived experiences that have informed how people eat today. Of course, there are a series of essays that look at uh, food and nostalgia and going to a place uh, with hope and dreams and living the life ahead. Uh, so we have uh, uh, we have essays fro from Hoinu Ozel, Techinimi, Amari. Jamatia, Juliana, Gertrude and Sabrina, uh, Jan Benny, Aku, Babina, Ningrechon, Tarun, Rini, Chani, Fuchum, Mebozo, Janice, Sangita Tete, Nivi, Anjuman, Him, Kunga, Praveen, and RK. And uh, there is one point I purposely missed out are we have three photo essays and I think Dolly will speak about why we have these three photo essays and what do they speak of? The the photo essays are really beautiful and we have an elaborate photo essays on food justice from Tarun Bharatiya and it's on the hawkers of Shillong, right? how they feed the, the city and, and everyone around and yet they have no space to sell the food and it's so apparent even in Dimapur and even in Guwahati. And I would say that Guwahati is the biggest city in the Northeast, has the worst, worst space for for vendors, especially for female vendors. We are so proud of the food we eat. And yet when we talk about where to buy it, it's in a very, very horrible space next to a uh, public bus stop or, you know, where they are walking and the police is chasing them because they are, because they are quote unquote illegal. And so hopefully my my hope my my prayer is that people who look at Tarun Paratia's photo essay on the street hawkers on social justice connect with that. Uh, the <clears throat> other chapter on food are actually two um, authors coming together, Fuchumbeni and Vivezo Voro, and it's titled 
Cakes of Nagaland. And I hope that the readers enjoyed and also remember that cakes are so integral to us as communities, to indigenous people. It's not foreign. I think like biscuits were introduced by, by the colonial planters, like milk tea was introduced by the sahibs. Um, cakes are so integral to us, birthdays, weddings. And so I just wanted to give that um, that idea. And I approach Joel with it. Joel in the beginning was a little confused as as a dear, I think, collaborator from Goa and then who lived in Bombay. He was like, what are, what are you talking about? How can it be cakes of Nagaland? But but I hope that, you know, when it comes to cakes and as notice food, it'll the narrative will never be the same again. Um the third chapter is this beautiful photo essay by Kunga and uh, Praveen, and it's from Sikkim, uh, Darjeeling, and Kalimpong area, and it's on food, and it's on the sacred ceremonies of the Himalayan uh, communities. It's very, very beautiful. I hope that you can, uh, for the readers, have a look at that. I would like to give a shout out from Joel and my end for this for this book book cover. So if you even Google food journey stories from the heart, you will see the most beautiful book cover and it's from one of our contributors, Praveen Chetri, uh, from Kalimpo. And these are yeasts to make fermented, uh, you know, rice beer. And I think that's the spirit that we are talking about. So thanks, Joel, for passing on the question to me. But I think that's where I'll end. Thank you so much to both of you. This was such an engaging conversation. And I'm very sure that our listeners will now go back to picking up copies of your book and reading it. So thank you once again for giving me so much time. Thank you, Rituparna. Thank you, Rituparna.